and mischievous, shy and protective. We walked around until two in the morning and finally, almost simultaneously, revealed that neither one of us had a place to go. We laughed about that, but it was late and we were both tired. I think I know somewhere we can stay, he said. His last roommate was out of town. I know where he hides his key. I don't think he would mind. We got the subway out to Brooklyn. His friend lived in a little place on Waverly, near the Pratt campus. We went through an alleyway where he found the key hidden beneath a loose brick and led ourselves into the apartment. We both fell shy when we entered, not so much because we were alone together as that it was someone else's place. Robert busied himself making me comfortable and then, in spite of the late hour, asked if I would like to see his work that was stored in a back room. Robert spread it out over the floor for me to see. There were drawings, etchings, and he unrolled some paintings that reminded me of Richard Poisidart and Henri Michaud. Multifarious energies radiated through interweaving words and calligraphic line, energy fields built with layers of word, paintings and drawings that seemed to emerge from the subconscious. There were a set of discs intertwining the words ego, love, God, merging them with his own name. They seemed to recede and expand over his flat surface. As I stared at them, I was compelled to tell him of my nights as a child, seeing circular patterns radiating on the ceiling. He opened a book on tantric art. Like this, he asked? Yes. I recognized with amazement the celestial circles of my childhood, a mandala. I was particularly moved by the drawing he had done on Memorial Day. I had never seen anything like it. What also struck me was the date, Joan of Arc's feast day, the same day I had promised to make something of myself before her statue. I told him this, and he responded that the drawing was symbolic of his own commitment to art, made on the same day. He gave it to me without hesitation, and I understood that in this small space of time we had mutually surrendered our loneliness and replaced it with trust. We looked at books on Dada and surrealism and ended the night immersed in the slaves of Michelangelo. Wordlessly, we absorbed the thoughts of one another, and just as dawn broke, fell asleep in one another's arms. When we awoke, he greeted me with his crooked smile, and I knew he was my knight. And as if it was the most natural thing in the world, we stayed together, not leaving each other's side save to go to work. Nothing was spoken, it was just mutually understood. For the following weeks, we relied on the generosity of Robert's friends for shelter, notably Patrick and Margaret Kennedy, in whose apartment on Waverly Avenue we had spent our first night. Ours was an attic room with a mattress, Robert's drawings tacked on the wall and his paintings rolled in a corner, and I with only my plaid suitcase. I'm certain it was no small burden for this couple to harbor us, for we had meager resources 
and I was awkward socially. In the evenings, we were lucky to share the Kennedys' table. We pulled our money, every cent going toward our own place. I worked long hours at Brentano's and skipped lunches. I befriended another employee named Frances Finley. She was delightfully eccentric and discreet. Discerning my plate, she would leave me Tupperware containers of homemade soup on the table of the employee's cloakroom. This small gesture fortified me and sealed a lasting friendship. Perhaps it was the relief of having a safe haven at last, for I seemed to crash, exhausted and emotionally overwrought.